Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Forever Dog I used to think that this was my town What a stupid thing to think I hear you biting off a breakdown I myself am on the brain I used to want to be a real man I don't know what that even means I just want you in my arms again And we can search each other's dreams What's up, 3Bs? What's up, Diamond Dogs? What's up, Athletic Dribbles? It's Rhea Butcher, the host of this podcast, which is uh, Three Swings. It's a podcast about baseball and other things. And uh, we're slowly coming back to baseball being part of that conversation. <laughs> uh, but it's mostly been other things. Um, did I say all of the call thing? I can't remember. My headphones were in the wrong place, so I got very distracted. I still, I have so many channels in my brain. I have downgraded recently in the past, like, year and a half from, you know, the full 500 channel package to trying to trim it down to about 50. Um, it sometimes is a great thing to have working for me. Like, when I'm doing stand-up, I can think five sentences ahead and be distracted by somebody talking in the audience and continue to talk. However, it's not always that great just day to day. Um, cause oftentimes I'm distracted and, uh, that is, makes it difficult to build the intimacy with other human beings. Um, and when I use the word intimacy, I mean closeness, not, um, sex. <laughs> I think it's very, uh, Indicative of our puritanical roots in uh, this country, uh, the United States of America, um, that we think when we say the word intimacy, we mean sex, um, which is very funny to me because that's uh, what I used to think. And now I realize that's not what it is all the time. It can be, but that's not the only thing Um, I've found that, you know, uh, recent weeks, recent months, recent years. It's all about like an unfolding of understanding, right? And being open to new things and remaining teachable and um, understanding that you can never fully know anything. And also, that doesn't mean you don't try. That just means you keep trying. Um, And like knowing that there's new definitions of things all the time, holding on to old ideas is not always going to be the best way forward. But... (laughs) You can remain open to these new things and then also just like give them back away to people instead of like, I want to make people think and know exactly what I now know. 
Um, which is trippy and it doesn't really work because <laughs> like it doesn't really work for me. Although I will say like, you know, people who express themselves, you know, with ang- anger and the the clarity that anger can sometimes bring have taught me a lot. Um, however, that's just not how I choose to, I, I just don't, I'm just realizing how much, especially as like a white person and like a white queer person that like, um, I don't, it doesn't mean I can't be angry. It's just that I don't have a right to be angry externally for progress, if that makes sense. Like my anger does not serve any sort of movement forward for more than just me, if that makes sense. Like I, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that like I don't get to be angry or I shouldn't be angry, but my anger points me towards the truth and I can then share that truth, but not the anger, if that makes sense. Um, I hope it does. I don't ever write out any of these things. The only part that's written is what the lovely bench coach Brett gives me as notes, um, for every episode. So if you're ever like, I don't understand, or this seems off or whatever, it's because this podcast is just where I try to share that truth instead of be angry. And I mean, there were many episodes where I was very angry. Um, I guess it's just like within, you know, uh, being actively anti-racist and anti-white supremacist as a white person, my like rage is misplaced if I put it towards those things externally, publicly, however you want to think about it. Um, And again, that doesn't mean I don't get to be angry about it. It's just that the anger doesn't really do anything for anybody but me. Um, and just that like uh, understanding and sort of perspective shift for me has really changed a lot. And it's, um, you know, less tiring, less, uh, it's like I realized, and I got a lot of this from, um, father Gregory Boyle, who, uh, is the, he, he started with many people, um, homeboy industries. And I read both of his books, tattoos on the heart and barking at the choir, which I highly recommend right now. I'm going to recommend them all the time, but they're easy to read. It's a lot about compassion. And if you can set aside, you know, like the fact that he is part of a religious denomination and just look at the fact that like he is humbly serving that denomination and his fellow human beings, regardless of whether they um, become part of his congregation or religion or anything like that is not the point. The point is to um, love one another and um, when it, he talks a lot about like once the work stopped being about him rescuing people and about him expanding his idea of compassion and understanding and kinship with other people and knowing that like his experience and his luck of the, you know, the way he happened to be born versus someone else doesn't make him better than anybody else. In fact, it, he 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 is humbled by the amount of things that other people have had to go through. Um, and so that's just another way of of me talking about being tired that like when it was when things were to serve my ego and they continue to be when I want the praise or whatever as a white person, you know, because I'm a human being also um, when my ego wants to people to be like giving me credit for something. Um, and this is not a consistent thing, but I, I am just, um, admitting to that because I think it's a very human thing that, that, you know, it, 
it's exhausting because you're not, it's not flowing through you. You're trying to get something back. You know, whenever I'm trying to get something back or get anything, if I'm doing something to get something, it's exhausting. And that's in any, anything. Um, but especially this. So that brings me to something that I wanted to bring up. And I think I, I won't get into it too much for a bunch of reasons, but I'm working on a guest that's going to probably provide a, even more insight on it. And I've also spent, you know, two years of a podcast talking about this very thing, but that's also why, why I want to bring it up. And I'm glad that I was a little bit late um, in recording this podcast because it gave me the opportunity to have this information. The Cleveland baseball team yesterday, it is July 4th today, uh, and I'm recording this podcast on the 4th of July. Um, <clears throat> so yesterday, the 3rd of July, uh, the Cleveland baseball team released a statement on their um, social media, um, and I'm just going to read it. It's also ironic that it begins with a statement from the I word, but okay, I'll continue from there. Uh, we are committed to making a positive impact in our community and embrace our responsibility to advance social justice and equality. Our organization fully recognizes our team name is among the most visible ways in which we connect with the community. We have had ongoing discussions organizationally on these issues. The recent social unrest in our community and our country has only underscored the need for us to keep improving as an organization on issues of social justice. With that in mind, we are committed to engaging our community and appropriate stakeholders to determine the best path forward with regard to our team name. While the focus of the baseball world shifts to the excitement of an unprecedented 2020 season, we recognize our unique place in the community and are committed to listening, learning, and acting in the manner that can best unite and inspire our city and all those who support our team. Now, I reposted this with holy shit and um, some statements of like, I can't believe they're actually doing it. Um, and some people took that and, and I also compared it to like, uh, like television networks, just scrubbing, like just pulling all these episodes that have like blackface either directly or indirectly. And the indirectly is like a golden girls episode. Um, and I compared it to that and like hollow gestures and, I do think that the wording is incredibly hollow and it went through a lot of PR spin and, you know, they use the word social ju justice instead of racial justice. Um, they use our community, community, community over and over again. These are all words that have been like co-opted from activism and in the, you know, um, that have been used for, you know, decades. I'm not, and uh, just turned into kind of nothing. And I fully recognize how sort of nothing that statement is. However, with the amount of time and energy that I, I personally have spent discussing this team name, uh, which is not the same as any activists who have been working to change it. However, it is something that I've felt as a person who grew up as a fan of the team in the, the community that they speak of. Um, having that team be sort of ingrained within my love of this sport and therefore a part of my sort of makeup, if you like cultural makeup, um, and as a white person have felt 
somewhat of a duty to discuss it um, and its importance. I do just want to point out that the fact that they are even publicly saying anything that is, you know, pretty hollow and pretty sleek and pretty, I'll, I'll, I'll believe it when I see it, um, is still something. It's still something to, to say, like, um, I did a show with a, a comedian named Dallas Goldtooth who you should follow. And he's, he referenced it as the dominoes are beginning to wobble. And like, to me, that's the amount that I am looking at this as a positive. I mean, I don't want to tell anybody how to feel. You get to feel the way you want to feel. And I'm also a white person, so I don't want to tell anybody how to feel as a white person. But as a human being, I don't want to tell you how to feel either. This is how I feel about it. And as a person who grew up around this franchise, as a person who knows people who work within it, um, not necessarily for them, but within them, um, it's a big deal. It's This is a lot. And I'm not going to like heap praise over them for beginning to start the first step. But I do think it's important to be like, wow, I can't believe they took it. I didn't think they, I, I honestly did not think they would ever do it. I really believe that they would hide behind other teams. Once they got rid of the mascot, I thought they would just like take their foot off the gas. And when I say get rid of the mascot, like take it off the uniforms, they, they still have that merchandise. Um, and for both good and bad reasons, um, the good reason is if they allowed that trademark to like lapse, someone else would buy it and, you know, make a ton of that merchandise. However, I think perhaps a good thing to do would be to give that trademark over to, um, I don't know, literally any indigenous nonprofit or organization. That also is something that I've said about them before, but I'll say it again. They, as far as I know and haven't seen anything, they have no outreach to indigenous or native communities. Um, they say our community and none of it, it does not reflect a native community. Um, and I used to have a joke, which is on an album that I put out a couple of years ago called back to back, um, where, you know, people would say, well, I don't hear any native people complaining about the, this team or this, that, the other thing. And I would say, don't you think that's the problem? That is the problem. You think because the people aren't here because we 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 move them off of their land <laughs> and then we we constructed and erected these these caricatures of them and made fun of them and do is the Cleveland baseball team's name the most insidious version of of a slur N no do some people who are indigenous or and or native identify as that word? Yes. Does that excuse a baseball team reaping profits off of using it? No, it does not. <laughs> Do I see people who perhaps identify as native wearing that merchandise? Yes. And they get to do that if they want to. I think it's wrong for a corporation to profit off of it. That's what I think. And I think that it's wrong to um to diminish a people by emblazoning clothing with a cartoon that does not depict any sort of reality whatsoever um and also to use a name 
that was incorrect to begin with, you know, it just isn't not, there's no, there's no person in that organization who even is a native person, <laughs> you know, like I, there are other, the Oakland athletics says have an indigenous people's night in their stadium. Cleveland doesn't even do that because then they would be admitting to it. My very intelligent girlfriend pointed that out. If they did any of these things, like donated money or had any sort of outreach, then they would be admitting fault. And you know in a capitalist society that admitting fault, a capitalist society runs on insurance. And if you admit any amount of fault, if you say you're sorry, if you say you're you're trying to amend anything or you want to pay anything back, then you're admitting fault and you are done for in a court of law, which is the thing that we made up. And then didn't follow laws are just a thing that white colonialists came up with and set down on land that they didn't own and stole from people who culturally and spiritually did not believe and still don't believe that you can actually own land. (laughs) Um, and we capitalized on that. So this is all very, I was going to just like briefly touch on this, but like I said, Um, I'm hoping to have Nick Francona back on the show next show so we can discuss this a little further. He, um, has been actually working in part to make this change. And I actually believe that he might be able to get it done because he told me he was working on it. And then about two weeks later, this statement came out. And so again, you get to be angry and you get to think it's not enough. However, as a person who has been trying to help in whatever amount of a way and as a as a former and potentially future Cleveland fan <laughs> uh I'm just like sort of politically neutral on them as a baseball fan um I it it gives me hope that there might be something because they can't really go back on this now you know they've said it um and so that it's it's important and that does not mean I'm like, oh, I'm back on board and they're so great and I can't believe it. Not an, you know, it's like, it's just, um, it's just good. That's it. Uh, that's as, as simple as it is. Um, and so I've been trying to, uh, give everybody places to donate every episode. Um, so today, because of what we're talking about, um, with the Cleveland baseball team. Um, please a go follow Dallas Goldtooth. This is where I got the link for this. If you are so inclined and able to do so, please donate. Uh, if you want to match me, I donated $50. Um, if you would like to match me or beat me, I would love that and feel free to text your screenshot or I mean, tweet your screenshot to me. I'm happy, happy to re tweet those things. Um, so you can donate to the bail fund for the uh, land protectors, um, actually land defenders, who were arrested last night at the rally around uh, Mount Rushmore. Um, They were there asserting their land rights under the 1868 Fort Laramie Treaty, blocking the road, and then some of those activists and uh, land defenders, excuse me, uh, were arrested. So if you want to help those friends out, please donate to the to bhlegalfund.org. That's the Black Hills Legal Fund.org, but it is bhlegalfund.org. If you accidentally type in .com, it redirects you to 
Donald Trump. So make sure you go to the .org website. It's amazing to me that they have enough time and bandwidth to make redirects, but they don't have enough time to, um, I don't know, help anyone during a pandemic. So anyway, um, thanks for listening to the beginning of the show. We'll be back in a minute with some lovely notes from Brett, bench coach Brett, um, about a whole lot of baseball in just a moment. All right, we're back. Um, Bench coach Brett, thanks for listening to that lovely ad. Please consider purchasing from that lovely support company. Um, It helps the show and it helps Forever Dog. So we appreciate it very much. So I wanted to um, just take a moment to shout out the Negro League's 100th anniversary, um, which was going to be celebrated this past week during Men's Major League Baseball. Um, but because of the pandemic, um, and the lack of baseball being played professional men's professional baseball being played, um, it was pretty much just people, uh, participating in the tipping your cap hashtag. And, uh, I didn't see a ton of activity on the Negro leagues 100, which was the, I believe official hashtag from the Negro league museum. Um, but the primary source for these notes on the 100th anniversary comes from NLBM.com, uh, which is the Negro league baseball museum.com. There's actually two of them, uh, one in Kansas city and one in Birmingham, Alabama. I have attended both. Um, obviously you can't go to physical places right now. However, in the future, when that is a thing again, um, I highly recommend doing so. They're both wonderful. Um, The Kansas City uh, Negro Leagues Museum is actually in a very cool complex of uh, sort of black, a black historical district in Kansas City with a a blues museum um, and I believe one other, but it's at least those two. Um, I could not find my photos from when I went and I also went, right before they closed, there was like 15 minutes left and they graciously let me go in. But I was, when I went to the Kansas city first, honestly overwhelmed. And I'm pretty sure there's back episodes about both of these. So if you're feeling so inclined to go back, listen to those. Um, but just to like, even just as, cause I, I've never been to Cooperstown and I'm kind of grateful that I hadn't. Um, and that I, experience these museums before that because the sort of immersive experience that they made there's there's a a sort of like scaled down sort of um museum or a field within the museum and that's like the first thing you see when you walk in and it is actually like as a baseball fan a stunning transport back to another time of baseball when I wish I could have experienced it and how my experience of playing in my league that I'm a part of actually kind of helps me feel this sort of like barnstorming or like factory league baseball in the, the late, you know, in the twenties and thirties and forties of when baseball was the entertainment of the time. And when baseball really was what people did with their free time, they either went to go see it or they played it. Um, And so it was really just like an amazing thing to just like look out and see these 
players and see this field. And I remember in the Kansas City Museum as well, there were, um, you know, statues to Tony Stone, Connie Morgan, and uh, Mamie Peanut Johnson. There were photo exhibits of the women owners who were involved in the Negro Leagues. There were um, installations of like hotels and barbershops and essentially all of the like black businesses that that grew up around this league that actually helped create um, not a separate, well, because of the time, a separate economy, but an economy nonetheless. Um, So anyway, I'll get into the, and also the Birmingham museum is right next to the Barons uh, stadium, which is also it. They became a minor league team. Um, And also Michael Jordan played for them, which is pretty cool. And there's tons of photos of him, in that stadium because they're very proud of that. And it's also not that far away from the civil rights museum in Birmingham, which I also highly recommend, uh, gorgeously curated and built and a fully immersive experience. Um, so in 1890, the national association of baseball players reached a gentleman's agreement to bar black players from major league baseball. Then on February 13th, 1920. So that's 30 years later. That's, you know, a whole, essentially generation of baseball players. Andrew Rube Foster led eight independent black baseball team owners into a meeting held at the Paseo YMCA in Kansas city, Missouri. There you go. Out of that meeting came the birth of the Negro national league, the first successful organized professional black baseball league that provided a playing field for African American and Hispanic baseball players to showcase their world-class baseball abilities for 40 years. African-Americans, dark-skinned Latinos, men and women played joyous and brilliant baseball in the Negro Leagues. The Negro Leagues became a catalyst for economic growth in African-American communities across the country and helped spark social change in America. Their rallying cry, we are the ship, the rest is, is, is the sea. Pretty powerful. This year, the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in Kansas City, Missouri, is leading a national centennial celebration in honor of the 100th anniversary of the founding of the Negro Leagues. What Rube Foster accomplished in establishing the Negro Leagues against the backdrop of American segregation is monumental and richly deserves to be more than just a footnote in baseball history, said Bob Kendrick, the NLBM president. The Negro Leagues would change the game and America, too. This milestone anniversary creates a platform for the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum to educate the public about this powerful story of triumph over adversity while using the many relevant life lessons to inspire a nation to embrace diversity and inclusion, Kendrick said. I would also just like add to that um, specifically about the, the, the part of uh, Bob Kendrick's quote deserves to be more than just a footnote in baseball history. I fully support this and not that my support necessarily matters too much, but, um, I, I think I just, it, 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 it bears repeating that the Washington nationals world series win last year and their world series run the entire time, the broadcasts neglected to mention that the last baseball championship was the Homestead grace. They went on and on about hockey and football and all these things. But, and and I got pushback on social media for pointing it out that, you know, oh, I, because I was like, this is white supremacy <laughs> in action. 
by not talking about those teams because they're not Major League Baseball is effectively erasing them. And so it's important to talk about them. And within the history and the lineage of what exists now, because after once baseball was integrated, once Jackie Robinson played in Major League Baseball, Major League Baseball essentially said they had plans to create a sort of like keep the like support the the Negro baseball leagues as a sort of like black minor leagues. But they were like, oh, having these two things is the antithesis of integration. So we won't support it. And essentially used integration to remove support of something that needed to exist to fully integrate and wiped out the prospects and the possibility and essentially said, no, you go, it's the same as like, to me, not funding schools in black neighborhoods and like shuttling a couple of kids here and there. Um, and, and saying like, yeah. And and it's also dependent on black people integrating into a white community as opposed to the integration of two things, which supporting the Negro leagues at the time could have done. Um, and the, the sort of slow ending of the Negro leagues, which I think it, it fully ended by the early sixties. So it stuck around, but its heyday was dampened and tamped down by men's major league baseball and white baseball, essentially, uh, you know, smothering it and not supporting it and taking its biggest stars and then not, not only taking its biggest stars. <laughs> it's not as though they took an equal number of players from white, you know, white majority white minor league teams. And then also from the Negro leagues, they only took the one, the, the people quote, the people they wanted, you know, um, like in Jackie's story, like his disposition was a big part of why he was the chosen one. And it created that dynamic of like, well, we'll, we'll choose the ones we want and then just like let the rest of it sort of go away. And the, the, the slow closing of the Negro leagues also, you know, it, it dilapidated these businesses, um, because they didn't have the support of this, of this entertainment and this league and this commodity, this, this, um, product. Um, and so, you know, I see that legacy continued in, I'm grateful that, you know, leagues and players like Mike Trout are tipping their cap to the Negro leagues and that, that it's out there. And of course people know of it. it that's, I, I don't want to act as though I'm the only person that knows about this thing, but it's not in it, when, when you have a team in the world series, that it is a, a Cinderella run and everybody's looking at it and you have an opportunity. It has a direct lineage to a Negro leagues team and quite possibly one of the most famous Negro league teams in the Homestead Grays. And you don't make mention of them at all during baseball's most watched series product moment, whatever you want to call it, then you're still participating in the white supremacist racist segregated idea 
and belief system and mentality. And I don't even know, I'm not even saying it's conscious. And that's the problem is that there's a lack of consciousness around who we talk about and what we remember. So I just think it's very important to, um, you know, study these things, learn about them, talk about them with other people. Um, I also, somebody called me out for using the word that the, the, the league uses on Instagram. And so I'm totally open to if anybody has any thoughts that I shouldn't be using that word. And if there's some other way that I could refer to it, but I think that not talking about the league would be worse. So I use the word because that's what the league is called. Um, and so if anybody, I I'm open to comments, I'm open to hearing whatever you think. Um, and I'll wrap up the article or I mean, <laughs> bench coach Brett's thoughts with uh, Major League Baseball had planned a league-wide tribute to the Negro Leagues on June 27th. And this past week, that celebration took place online due to quarantine with several current and former players, as well as a host of prominent civil rights leaders, entertainers, and politicians teaming up for a virtual tip of the cap to baseball's black pioneers such as Satchel Paige, Josh Gibson, Cool Papa Bell, and Jackie Robinson. Uh, I would also add Mamie Peanut Johnson, uh, Connie Morgan, and Tony Stone. Um, and Jackie Robinson, who began his career with the Kansas City Monarchs of the Negro Leagues. Uh, And you can view all of these tributes at tippingyourcap.com. Here are a few highlights. We've got Hammer and Hank, who was the last player, last Negro Leagues player to play in men's Major League Baseball. You've got Dave Winfield. You've got Ozzie Smith. You've got the cast of Tony Stone, the musical, and President Obama. Um, so check those out and also check out Ebbetsfield flannels. They sell a lot of Negro leagues merchandise. Also, you can buy Negro leagues merchandise at the NLBM store. Um, I got a really cool pin and a mug cause I, I just love mugs. I think I have like 50 mugs. Um, and yeah, I have also, um, major league baseball puts out some turn back the clock Negro leagues jerseys and hats. I have a Cleveland Buckeyes that I'm a big fan of. Uh, they won the 1945 World Series in the Negro Leagues. Um, so check that out. And also I would recommend Curveball, the, the story of Tony Stone, um, which is what the musical is sort of based off of. So check that out. Um, give that one a read. And then um, we will end the podcast this week with a sort of long form story. And the thing that I love about being a baseball fan is that there's a, a never ending well of information. I haven't even begun to scratch the surface of baseball history. And I say baseball because I mean everything. Um, I am a person who believes in working against the capitalist and white supremacist idea and patriarchal idea, quite frankly, all three of those are pretty in bed with each other, that um, Major League Baseball is the only kind of baseball that matters. And if you don't have an encyclopedic knowledge of that and stats from that, then you're not really a baseball fan. And I love baseball. I love lowercase baseball. I'm beginning to be less of a fan of big case baseball, sentence case baseball. Um, And I'm grateful to always be learning new stories about players and their experience. And this is one that I was honestly unaware of. And I wanted to tell this story 
for Pride Month, and it's it's now quote not Pride Month anymore. But I think Pride Month is an important sort of holiday time to recognize. But I also just want to recognize and shout out the fact that um, if you're a queer person, an LGBTQ person, any of that acronym, um, it's Pride every day. And so I just want to celebrate that with you and with anybody who considers themselves an ally or aligned or whatever you want to call it. Um, it's Pride all the time. So I wanted to share with you Bench Coach Brett's lovely notes and the story of Glenn Burke. Um, and our primary sources for this are outsports.com and beyondcron.org. Glenn Burke, who died 25 years ago, was the first MLB player to come out as gay in 1982. Burke, who played for the Dodgers and Oakland Athletics between 1976 and 1979, came out publicly in an Inside Sports magazine profile called The Double Life of a Gay Dodger in 1982, two years after he left professional baseball. Now, you might be listening to this and saying, well, he wasn't out when he was playing. I think if you're thinking that, perhaps shift your perspective a little bit and throw that away for just a second while you listen to this piece and just consider that that may not be what you think. It's harder to be gay in sports than anywhere else except maybe president, Burke said in that article. Baseball is probably the hardest sport of all. But they can't ever say now that a gay man can't play in the majors because I'm a gay man and I made it. Although Burke didn't come out publicly until 1982, he also didn't try to hide it. Many of his teammates and club owners knew that he was gay. As a result, Burke's big league career was marked by clashes with homophobic players and managers, including Tommy Lasorda and Billy Martin. During his major league career, Burke lived what he described in his autobiography Behind the Mask as a double life. When we were on the road, I would wait until my teammates were either in their rooms for the night or out on the town before heading out to gay bars and parties, he recalled. I would anxiously flag down a taxi cab while practically covering my head so no one would notice me. If someone did, I'd never acknowledge them. And realize that someone doing that is not denying it. They're just trying to live their life in without confrontation. So, like, imagine, if you can, while you listen to this, what it might be like to be this person in that time. And perhaps this is something I've needed to do when I point the finger at other people of not being out enough or not, not doing it the way I think they should. Perhaps I need to stop, slow down, and think about what it might be like. And perhaps they were out to the best of their ability and continued to be. I'm sure he played in fear, the fear of the fact that it's going to get out that he's gay, and once it comes out, you're going to take abuse, recalled Davey Lopez, one of his Dodger teammates, in 1994. Face it, society isn't ready for that. If there are any gay players, even today, and you would think that there probably are, that's why they choose not to come out, because they know their careers are going to be ruined. And I want to stop there, too, and just add that I have had, I'll say, DM conversations with baseball players who say now, which is, you know, 26 years later from 1994, that there are gay players. So there are gay players in baseball. And they choose not to come out because they don't want the attention. Um, and that it's not the culture, that the culture is actually very accepting. Now, 
I, I think it's both things. I think that it is a amazing that the culture is accepting because I, th- I think that baseball is a hard place for that to become acceptable. Um, and B it's not good enough. <laughs> I also think that, you know, in that moment, as a teammate, you know, when somebody says like, I don't want the attention, I don't want to distract from the, da, 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 da. everybody has a right to their own experience and what they want to keep private, private. But I would say if you are a person who is supportive of that person, the best thing you could say is I've got your back, no matter what you choose to do. And that might plant a seed for that person to realize like, Oh, I could do this. And I have a support system because I personally think as a queer person, I have a bit of a responsibility to the people who fought and died and are nameless, you know, who threw punches, who protected other people, who cared for people who we will never know. I am in a position with a small platform. I could probably do something with it. Um, And so every day it's striving towards more growth in that place. And I have to take chances and I have to take risks to do that and make mistakes publicly and be willing to own up to them and understand them and um, make changes. But I think that just because it's acceptable doesn't mean it doesn't need to be talked about. There has yet to be a player that has come out while playing. And there's a reason for that. I don't know all the reasons, but I think that it could change a lot if somebody did. And I hope that someone does. What's interesting to me is that the flip side of women's sports, and I'm using the binary here because that's what we're still working within. Um, the assumption is that everybody is gay until proven straight, you know, and it's used to diminish, you know, it's used in the same way to diminish people and to keep them small. Um, and especially with women to discount their abilities or, um, you know, whatever, whatever you want to call it. And like, it's just interesting to me that it's two very different things, but they achieve the same goal, which is to keep people small and to remove actual pride from being who you are. You know, it's not about like being better than anybody else. It's just about like the validity and the authenticity of everyone's experience. Another one of Burke's Dodger teammates, Reggie Smith, remembered homosexuality was taboo. I'm not going to sit here and say it was anything different. I'm sure it would have ruined his career. He would have not only been ostracized by his teammates, but management would have looked for ways to get him off the team and the public would not have tolerated it. Burke's relationship with Dodgers manager Tommy Lasorda in particular was strained by his friendship with Lasorda's openly gay son, Tommy Jr., who was a fixture of Los Angeles's gay scene, although his father denied that his son was gay. I knew there was a reason I didn't like Tommy Lasorda. Like there, I went to a Dodger game one, and there was like a, a Tommy Lasorda um, bobblehead night, and I was like, I don't need to come to that. <laughs> and I, I thought it was mostly racism, but it seems like it's homophobia also. Uh, Dodgers GM Al Campanis even offered Burke a $75,000 bonus at the beginning of the 1978 season to get married. I guess you mean to a woman, Burke responded, refusing the offer. That's a funny retort. Uh, In 1976, Burke appeared in 25 games and batted 239 for the Dodgers. The following year, he appeared in 83 games, batted 254 with 13 stolen bases, and played in three games in the World Series against the Yankees. However, two months into the 1978 season, 
Following the above conversation with GM Campanis, Burke had appeared in only 16 games and was batting 211 when the Dodgers announced that they were trading Burke to the Oakland Athletics for Billy North, a one-time base-stealing whiz whose career was on a downhill arc and was batting 212 when the teams made the switch. Burke's teammates were upset by the trade and suspected that it had more to do with his homosexuality than his hitting and fielding. I was talking with our trainer, Bill Bueller, Dodgers outfielder Dusty Baker, recalled to Inside Sports in 1982. I said, Bill, why'd they trade Glenn? He was one of our top prospects. He said, they don't want any gays on the team. I said, the organization knows? He, he said, everybody knows. So there you go. He was the life of the team, on the buses, in the clubhouse, everywhere, recalled Davey Lopez. This memory is echoed by many of Burke's other former teammates. Perhaps the most famous example of Burke's charisma and charm occurred on October 2nd, 1977. Burke ran onto the field to congratulate his Los Angeles Dodgers teammate, Dusty Baker, after Baker slugged his 30th home run in the last game of the regular season. As Baker jogged home from third base, Burke raised his hand over his head and Baker slapped it. It wasn't too long afterwards that the gesture became widespread and known as the high five. That being said, Burke also faced abuse from teammates. Several teammates refused to shower with him and joked openly about his sexuality in the locker room. Returning to his hometown to play for the Oakland A's was a double-edged sword. He had many friends and family in the area, but it would become harder to hide his homosexuality. Herb Kane, a popular columnist for the San Francisco Chronicle, wrote a story that a local ball player was a frequent visitor to San Francisco's gay Castro district. He didn't mention Burke by name, but suspicions increased. When some fans in the bleachers began calling him the F-word, F-bomb, when he was playing in the outfield, he knew his secret was out. The Athletics made Burke their regular outfielder. In 78 games, he hit 235 with 15 stolen bases. A pinched nerve in his neck kept him sidelined for most of the 1979 season. He refused to take cortisone shots to ease the pain so he could play. Instead, he left the team in midseason. At 26, it appeared his major league career was over. Burke left pro baseball, but he remained an active athlete. Many considered him the greatest openly gay athlete in the country. He won medals in the 100 and 200 meter sprints in the first gay games in 1982. I get to share a birth year with the gay games. I didn't even realize that. He was the star third baseman on a team in the San Francisco Gay Softball League and in 1982 led his team to winning the North American Amateur Athletic Gay Association World Series. He played basketball in the gay games in 1986. Berkeley High School retired his uniform number in his honor. He was a celebrity in San Francisco's gay community. But in 1987, Burke was hit by a car in San Francisco, crushing his leg and foot, which destroyed his athletic ability. And in 1991, Burke became a victim of the harsh sentencing policies instituted by the so-called War on Drugs of the Reagan and Bush administration when he was sentenced to 16 months in San Quentin for possession of cocaine. He was briefly jailed two more times after that for violating parole. Throughout the 80s and 90s, Burke lost many of his friends to AIDS, and in 1994, he was diagnosed with the disease himself. He shrunk to 145 pounds, 75 pounds less than his playing weight in the majors. After the local media reported that he was broke, living on the streets, and had AIDS, friends pressured the AIDS organization to help him with food and medical care. 
He spent his final months living with his sister, Lutha, in Oakland. He died on May 30th, 1995, at age 42. His autobiography, Out at Home, was published a few weeks later. In the intervening years, Burke's legacy has been kept alive in a number of ways. The 2010 documentary, Out, The Glenn Burke Story, and Phil Bidner's excellent middle-grade novel, A High Five for Glenn Burke, and just this past week, Billy Bean, the MLB's inclusion ambassador and the second player to come out as openly gay in retirement, penned a letter to Burke for out sports, noting the strides the A's and the Los Angeles Dodgers, Burke's former teams, had made in terms of LGBTQ inclusivity. With Bean in attendance, the A's held their first LGBT Pride Night just over 20 years after Burke's passing, donating nearly $25,000 to LGBTQ organizations and inviting Burke's brother to throw out the ceremonial first pitch. In 2015, Sean Conroy pitched his first game for the Sonoma Stompers, a pro team in the Independent Pacific Association, making him the first openly gay player to appear in a professional baseball game. Since then, a number of other out-of-the-closet gay athletes have played in the minor leagues. So I recorded the end of the podcast and then I realized that I missed an entire topic so you're gonna go from me feeling pretty emotional at the end of that Glenn Burke story to me talking to this talking to you about this story and then me still being kind of emotional at the end of the podcast so it's gonna be a wild ride for you Um, but I appreciate you taking it Um, the last story that I wanted to cover this week and I'm glad I'm, I, I have zero regrets that I forgot because even more stuff, even more things to talk about in regards to this story can even come up um, because I missed it and had a whole nother, what, 24 hours, which is a, you know, like basically a year in news these days. Uh, but Ian Desmond released a statement on his Instagram The source for this is CNN. Rockies outfielder Ian Desmond is opting out of the 2020 season. Coronavirus concerns factored into his decision, but his decision was primarily influenced by the ongoing national reckoning with racism that is happening in the wake of George Floyd's murder. I would also say the wake of countless uh, black Americans' um, murders over the course of 450 years. Um more specifically the violence that we've just barely been witness to we as in white people um uh black lives matter has been a movement since 2014 um they bought that domain after george zimmerman was acquitted of murder of murdering trayvon martin so i just want to pause and say that like while George Floyd's murder has been like a touchstone and a spark um, that has led this current sort of energized section of this movement, um, it is not any one thing, which is fortunate and unfortunate. However, I don't want to discount the loss of George Floyd, um, and I don't want his death to be in vain, but I also think that Breonna Taylor and... uh, Antoine Rose and Elijah uh, McCain and just countless others. Too many to name. You might find yourself thinking, I can't remember everyone's name. And that is 
part of it. That is a lot of it, is that we only know these names because uh, they got caught. And so there are countless people whose lives were lost um, because of institutionalized racism um, in this country. And the, the baseline of that in this country and what it runs on and baseball... Um, as we just discussed in the Glenn Burke story, um, and today is Larry Doby Day. Larry Doby was the second black man to play in the major leagues, and he played for Cleveland in the AL. And he, you know, has gotten less fanfare than Jackie Robinson, uh, but he caught as much hell as he did. So, um, you know, and then and in talking about the Negro Leagues at, up top at the beginning of the show. Um, so to pretend as though baseball exists outside of that is, I think a lot of people's brains protecting them from looking at the reality of a thing that they love. So, uh, something Desmond says needs to happen within the MLB too. So we agree on that. Obviously in an Instagram post, Desmond detailed how he made his decision and how racism impacted his life within the sport and outside of it as a biracial black man. I hope everybody's loving the birds in my yard. Um, I'm going to read it here. A few weeks ago, I told the social media world a little bit about me that I never talk about. I started it by saying why that was. I don't like sadness and anger. I'd found an even keel allowed me to move through my days with more ease than emotion did. So I kept it inside, but that comes at an internal cost, and I could no longer keep a lid on what I was feeling. The image of Officer Derek Chauvin's knee on the neck of George Floyd the gruesome murder of a black man in the street at the hands of a police officer broke my coping mechanism. Suppressing my emotions became impossible. In the days since I began sharing my thoughts and experiences as a biracial man in America, I've received many requests to elaborate, but it's hard to know where to begin. And in truth, there's a lot on my mind. Here's some of it. Recently, I took a drive over to the Little League fields I was basically raised on here in Sarasota. They're not in great shape. They look run down, neglected. When I saw a Cal Ripken Little League schedule tacked on a bulletin board, I walked over to check it out, and it was from 2015. The only thing shiny and new to my eye was a USSSA banner, travel ball, showcases. So not not so much for baseball. So not so much baseball for all anymore, as much as baseball for all who can afford it. I walked around those fields deserted at the time and my mind raced. I stopped at a memorial for a man named Dick Lee, Coast Federal head coach and manager, Sarasota Little League, 1973 to 1985. There was a quote from him on the plaque. Many men have cherished some of their greatest moments in life while stopping and taking time to reflect back on the young men they have helped develop from childhood into manhood with the ability to carry on in life. In no other activity has man been able to see this growth better than he has in the heart and character of this nation. To see our youth grow and develop in the knowledge and skills to play baseball is a re reward that only one ha who has been involved with would know. Baseball not only develops the physical skills of our youth, but develops a person with a knowledge of fair play while always stressing a desire to win. That great moment comes when you look at the final product and realize the job done. There's nothing more satisfying when watching these young men than hearing that familiar voice call out, Hi, coach, transcending that special spirit of pride. I know it sounds simple to say, as a Major League Baseball player, that these fields were important in shaping my life, but I don't mean my career. 
I read Dick Lee's words and I stood there and I thought about when I was 10 and my stepfather dropped me off for a baseball tryout. He never came back to get me. Later, as I sobbed alone at the top of the bleachers, a kind stranger offered me a chance to make a phone call to alert my mom. I thought about the moment, not too long after that, when my coach, John Howard, seeing I was upset about an out or something, wrapped me in an embrace so strong I can still remember how his arms felt around me, how it felt to be hugged like that, embraced by a man who cared about the way I was feeling. Then another memory hit me. My high school teammates chanting, white power before games. We would say the Lord's Prayer and put our hands in the middle so all the white kids could yell it. Two black kids on the whole team sitting in a stunned silence while the white players didn't seem to notice. I started to walk the fields a bit, and that's when I thought of Antoine. These fields are where I learned a game that's, that I've played 1,478 times at the major league level. It started when I was 10, 11, 12 years old, exactly how old Antoine was, 12, when I met him at the Nationals Youth Baseball Academy in D.C., he couldn't read. He could barely say his ABCs. One morning when his mom was shuffling Antoine and his siblings off to their aunt's house at 4 a.m. so she could get to work, they opened their door to a man stabbed to death on the ground. So, no sleep, traumatized by murder, literally outside their door, eating who knows what for, who knows what for lunch, they head off to school, and they're ex- expected to perform in a classroom. Meanwhile, my kids fly all over the country watching their dad play. They attend private schools and get extra curriculum from learning centers. They have safe spaces to learn, grow, develop. But the only thing dividing us from Antoine is money. It just doesn't make any sense. Why isn't society's number one priority giving all the kids the best education possible? If we seriously want to see change, isn't education where it all starts? Give all kids a safe place to go for eight hours a day where their teachers or coaches are happy to see them, where they feel loved and supported. I went back to those little league fields because I wanted to figure out why they weren't thriving the way I remembered. What I came away with was more confusion. I had the most heartbreak and the most fulfillment right there on those fields, in the exact same place. I felt the hurt of racism, the loneliness of abandonment, and so many other emotions. But I also felt the triumph of success, the love of others. The support of a group of men pulling for each other and picking one another up as a team. I got to experience that because it was a place where baseball could be played by any kid who wanted it. It was there, it was affordable, and it was staffed by people who cared. But if we don't have these parks, academies, teachers, coaches, religious institutions, if we don't have communities investing in people's lives, what happens to the kids who are just heartbroken and never get that moment of fulfillment? If what Dick Lee knew to to be true remains so, that baseball is about passing on what we've learned to those who come after us in hopes of bettering the future for others, then it seems to me that America's pastime is failing to do what it could, just like the country it entertains. Think about it. Right now in baseball, we've got a labor war. We've got rampant individualism on the field. In clubhouses, we've got racist, sexist, homophobic jokes, or flat-out problems. We've got cheating. We've got a minority issue from the top down. One, African-American GM. Two, African-American managers. Less than 8% black players. No black majority team owners. Perhaps most disheartening of all is a puzzling lack of focus on understanding how to change those numbers. A lack of focus on making baseball accessible and possible for all kids, not just those who are privileged enough to afford it. If baseball is America's pastime, maybe it's never been a more fitting one than now. 
Antoine was 12 years old when he started going to the Nationals Youth Baseball Academy because that's when it started existing in his universe as a resource. We got him a tutor, he got into other programs, and he learned to read. He was on the right track. He died when he was 18, shot 31 times in D.C. A 16-year-old kid was just arrested for his murder. It's almost safe to say that the best years of his life came from that academy, and yet the staff running it have to beg people to invest money and time. How can that be? Why isn't there an academy like that in every single community? Why does Major League Baseball have to have a specific youth affiliation, youth baseball affiliation with RBI? Why can't we support teaching the games game to all kids, but especially those in underprivileged communities? Why aren't accessible, affordable youth sports viewed as an essential opportunity to affect kids' development as opposed to money-making propositions and recruiting chances? It's hard to wrap your head around it. I won't tell you that I look around at the world today, baseball or otherwise, and feel like I have the answers. I don't. I'm not a perfect person. I kept my emotions inside for so long because it seemed easier to numb myself than to embrace the why behind my feelings. Doesn't it seem easier to just block it out when you walk down the street and see women clutch their purse at the sight of you? To push it behind you when you find out your grade school had to hold a meeting for all the students to let them know you and your sister, two black kids, were about to enroll? To slough it off when someone makes a racist joke or suggests you must be an athlete because how else could you have such a nice house? It forced me into a box. And in a lot of ways, I feel like everything in my life has been about boxes. I remember as a biracial kid, I dreaded filling out paperwork. I feared those boxes, white, black, other. The biracial seat is a completely unique experience, and there are so many times you feel like you belong everywhere and nowhere at once. I knew I wasn't walking around with the privilege of having white skin, but being raised by a white mother, an incredible mother, I never fully felt immersed in black culture. I almost always checked black because I felt the prejudices. That's what being black meant to me. Do you feel the hurt? Do you experience racism? Do you feel like you're at a slight disadvantage? Even in baseball, I'm immensely grateful for my career and for all people who influenced it. But when I reflect on it, I find myself seeing those same boxes, the golden rules of baseball. Don't have fun. Don't pimp home runs. Don't play with character. Those are white rules. Don't do anything fancy. Take it down a notch. Keep it all in the box. It's no coincidence that some of my best years came when I played under Davey Johnson, whose number one line to me was, Desi, go out there and express yourself. If in other years I just allowed myself to be who I was, to play free, and the way I was born to play, would I have been better? If we didn't force black Americans into white America's box, think of how much we could thrive. The COVID-19 pandemic has made this baseball season one that is a risk I am not comfortable taking. But that doesn't mean I'm leaving baseball behind for the year. I'll be right here at my old Little League, and I'm working with everyone involved to make sure we get Sarasota Youth Baseball back on track. It's what I can do in the scheme of so much. So, I am. With a pregnant wife and four young children who have lots of questions about what's going on in the world, home is where I need to be right now. Home for my wife, Chelsea. Home to help. Home to guide. Home to answer my older three boys' questions about coronavirus and civil rights, and life. Home to be their dad.
It's a pretty powerful statement from Ian Desmond. And um, I just like, I commend him for what he's doing. I can't, I, I, I couldn't, <laughs> there's not much I can add to that other than yes, that's exactly it. Um, what a powerful statement by a powerful player. And I really respect what he's doing. Um, and I just, uh, <laughs> I don't know what else to say. Um, it's, it's a positive, it's a positive ending in a, in a story that has a lot of unfortunate sadness, but like he says, he had heartbreak and fulfillment in baseball. And we all know that that's exactly what it's all about, um, in baseball and in life. Um, and I also just wanted to say before we wrap up this episode, um, over the weekend, David Price is also sitting out of the season. He is stating simply the COVID epidemic and all of the like safety precautions are not, you know, he's, he's not willing to put himself at that kind of risk. I, I respect that. I commend it. Um, Sean Doolittle is very, very openly speaking about what's going on and the fact that he's getting tested and he's not getting his results back. He's wearing a mask every time you see him. Um, he also made a statement over the weekend where he said that sports are what are like are a gift for a functioning society. And I couldn't agree more. I've been feeling all this men's professional sports going back just kind of feels like uh, let them eat cake a little bit. But um, I've seen Sean Doolittle in a mask. I've seen Francisco Lindor showing up in a mask. And then Randy Dobnak today tweeted out, just wear a fucking mask. <laughs> And it was also a West Virginia mask, which I really appreciated. Randy Dobnak, you might uh, remember, was an Uber driver last season before he made a, a postseason debut. Um, so I respect the hell out of these guys. And also Mike Trout was wearing an N95 mask while working out. And he is also not sure that he's going to play. But I just respect the heck out of that guy for doing what he's doing and sort of, you know, quietly showing up, you know, if if. <laughs> just like Ian Desmond said, there's these white rules of baseball and I, I respect Mike Trout for doing something like wearing a mask within those rules so that what, what can people see? He, he's the golden boy of baseball and he's wearing a mask. Like what, you know, it takes everybody. It takes everybody doing it in multiple ways to do it. That's the thing. There's no one way to do all this except wear a damn mask. So please, Wear a damn mask. And if you don't need to go out, please don't do it. Um, and let's take care of each other. I'm overwhelmed by a lot of things and just grateful to have this podcast and grateful to everybody that listens to it and everybody who, you know, we may not all be on the same page, but at least we're trying to read from the same book. And um, I appreciate your support of this podcast and uh, my comedy and um, your continued support. It means a lot to me. And I'm really grateful for everybody that thinks that these things are important, you know, um, and that supporting people in in their struggles and also in their wins is really important. Um, <clears throat> and so I just, I guess, to leave you on this idea of like, let's just keep going. Let's just keep going. I know it's very hard right now. Um, and I know that there's just a lot happening, you know, and I don't say that to, to dismiss it and to, you know, uh, everything that's going on right now. I just think we are in a moment of tremendous upheaval, um, 
tonight being July 4th and you're not going to hear this before <clears throat> it happens, but it is the last eclipse for like a couple years. And I don't know if you're like me, but it seems like we've been having eclipses every month and whether you believe in astrology or not, I don't necessarily use it to guide my life or anything, but I do believe that there is something to planetary alignments and aligning ourselves with the most good. And I think that it has led us to now. And I truly believe that, that big, major, positive change does not happen if everything's fine. If, if everybody's just going to brunch and feeling fine about everything, nothing is going to change. And so this is all positive. I do not want people to die. I want this country to be better. I want our lives to be better. And so I just urge you to keep going forward. And not every step you take has to be gigantic. You can take little steps. You can donate money. You can fill out civic action. You can protest. You can do so many things. But just don't give up. And just don't be satisfied. But also be grateful. You know, it's it's a large order, I understand. But we can look at these first steps and we can be grateful for them. And I'm not satisfied. You know, I'm I'm shocked that the Cleveland baseball team took the first step. Um, and I, I just think it's important. But I'm not satisfied. Um, and so I'll keep going. And I hope you will too. So thank you for listening. And I'll be back next week, um, hopefully with a guest. <laughs> so please donate to the bhbailfund.org. That's the Black Hills Bail Fund org to support the uh, Lakota land defenders. Um, any amount will do, but I would love it if you match my 50 bucks. Um, and, you know, rate, review, subscribe, pass along the podcast, talk to your friends, have those difficult conversations. Um, and those difficult conversations start with you. Every day, I have to practice remembering that I don't know everything. I am so much different than I was 10 years ago. And I'm grateful for that, but it's not good enough. <laughs> and I pretending to know or thinking that I know everything is going to get me right back to where I was 10 years ago. Um, and also life is really boring if you think you know everything. Um, and practice kindness, you know, practice sharing these things with people out of kindness and not out of telling them they're awful. I know that sounds difficult and I know that sounds too nice, but I'm not talking about being nice. I'm talking about being kind. You can be, be strongly worded and you can express yourself in kindness. And there is a time when you got to walk away, but you know that you did it. You know that you did it, you know? Um, but have those hard conversations, you know? And sometimes silence in a moment, like pointed silence can mean a lot. Letting someone's statement drop to the ground and letting them realize that they just said something. And then following that up can be pretty powerful. Um, so yes, do what you can. Take care of yourselves. Uh, seize the means of the day. <laughs> and as always, if you liked it, you liked it. Forever Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. 
For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook.